Good morning. Welcome to you. And if you have a copy of God's Word, I hope you do. Go ahead and make your way to 1 Thessalonians. It's a series that we've been going through, um, looking at how God has crafted us as Christians to be a light in our society and ultimately turn the world upside down by the way that we live and by what we believe. And so we're going to continue walking through that today. And if you are a guest with us, either online or in the room, we're so thankful to have you here. And we have a saying around here, if you are new and a visitor, would you just stick six with us? Stick six weeks just to hear about our heartbeat for the Lord, His Word, and what He's called us as a church to be on mission doing. And see if this is where God desires for you to be and to partner with us in ministry. So stick six weeks. And it's helpful for you to go through the next six weeks with us because we're looking at some very practical things that impact all of our lives. Things that are extremely influential in your life and in mine. And just this last week, uh, we started at the beginning of chapter 4 of First Thessalonians on our sex ethic. And that's a big part of our culture and our life. Today we're going to look at our work ethic. And then next week we're going to look at God's desire for us um, as far as our attitude towards death and dying. So a couple of great things coming up in the next few weeks. But today we're going to look specifically at work. And this is one of those areas that I don't know if we realize how much God cares about our work. For most of us, we kind of have our faith life and our work life, and there's two spheres out here, right? But they rarely overlap, if they overlap at all. And so we have our faith, you know, we want to pray, we want to believe these things. And, and for work, maybe how our faith interacts with it is we pray, God, would you get us this job? And then if we get the job, God, would you help us to do a good job, right? And we are probably going to come to that job and be good moral people. And that's kind of us living out our faith, being good moral people. But that's probably the extent of this overlap of these two things. And what I hope that we see today from this passage, from God's word to us, is that God cares about your work far more than you do. And he, he cares about it because it's a third of your life. I don't know if that's a sobering thing, an encouraging thing to you, or not so encouraging. But we spend about a third of our lives working. And God cares about all of our lives. He doesn't just care about your your time here on Sunday morning, this one hour that you spend, or your hour in small group during the week, though he does care about those things, God cares about every aspect of our lives. And so he's going to talk about our work today, and I'm thankful for it, because we need to hear it, right? This is something that's extremely important to us, but more important to God. And the reason why I think, this is a guess, but the reason why I think that we don't think that work is that important is because, man, it's insignificant. Right? Like nobody really cares about what I do. Maybe my boss cares, but my spouse doesn't care. My friends don't really care about the details of, of my work. But God cares. And I think one of the most beautiful places that we see in all of the Bible of God's care about our work is actually in the life of Christ. So think about this for a second. If you are familiar with the Bible, you know that we know about a little bit about the first two years of Jesus' life when he was born, Right? And then there's a 28-year gap, 28 years before we find out more information about Jesus, when he turns 30 and he starts his ministry. Like, what in the world is happening for these 28 years? Like, these are important years. We know about five in the scriptures, but there's 28 that we know very, very little about. But Jesus was working. We know that in those 28 years, Jesus was a carpenter. And what's fascinating about that is, even though the Son of God was a carpenter making things, there, there's no Jesus chair, right? 
Like he didn't work and craft a chair that's like so famous that still today they were like, do you have a, G, a JC chair? I got a JC chair. Like we, we don't have that, right? We don't even have a tool that Jesus invented while he worked. You know, like we have an Allen wrench now. There's no Jesus wrench. It's not out there. And yet, what's fascinating is that when Jesus starts his ministry and comes to get baptized, God the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He's well pleased? What has Jesus done? He hasn't healed anybody yet. He hasn't taught some amazing sermon on the mount yet. He hasn't died on the cross for our sins or rose from the dead. He hasn't done any of those things. He's worked as a carpenter. And then God the Father says, yeah, there's something about that that was honoring to me. That was glorifying to me. And so you might be sitting here today thinking, I don't even know if I care about my job. You need to know that God does. God deeply cares how we work and why we work and ultimately the results of our work. And so that's what we're going to unpack today. Those three things. Why do we even work? What's our motivation that drives us to work? And then how should we work as we work? What are the kind of undercurrents that guide us to, to work well? And if we live those undercurrents out rightly, then there'll be certain results. And what are the results that we'll see if we work according to God's work ethic? That's what we're going to see. So let's start 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll be in verse 1, and that's going to give us the context and the setting. And then we'll jump down to verse 9. It says this. Finally then, brothers, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and live to please God. Just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So in verse 1, he's saying all of this I'm about to say is about, work, about walking to please God. And then last week we saw this is how we please God in our sexual ethic. Now starting in verse 9, he's going to talk about our work ethic. Verse 9 says this. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love everyone. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly. And to mind your own affairs. And to work with your hands as we have instructed you. So that you may walk properly before outsiders. And be dependent on no one. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you that you care about every aspect of our lives. Lord, you care about our family life, you care about um, our sex life, you care about our work life, you care about our thought life. Lord, we thank you today specifically for the gift of work. This is a gift that you've given us. And I ask that you would help us to understand how to steward this gift well in this broken world. We thank you that you've given us the example who you serve. Lord, you work, you created all things. You work graciously to bring us salvation. So thank you for how you've worked. We lift up now our jobs and our work ethic to you and ask that you would bend our thoughts to your thoughts. Bend our will to your ways. Let me invite you this morning in just this moment of silence to pray that God would speak to you through his word today. Let's pray and ask God to help us.
We ask that you would please help us not to worry. Help us to trust you with your word to us. It's in your name we pray. All right, so three questions. The first question is this. What should be our motivation to work? What should be our motivation to work? Why do we work? This is where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. The other two questions are important, but if we don't get this first one right, then the other two will be a miss completely. So what is our motivation to work? Well, two things that we see, and honestly, when I unfold these, you're not going to be like, oh my goodness, I've never thought about that before. But I hope you see it radically different than what this world has to say. All right, the first thing, what motivates us to work is our love for God. Our love for God. We work to please God, verse 1 says. He's telling us, this is why we do the things we do. We walk to please God. This is so important that we understand that this is where it starts. It starts with Him and working for Him. And it's not working to appease Him. It's working to please Him. And there is a vast difference between the two of those things. Many of us will spend our lives working to appease God. Where I, I'm going to do these things, I'm going to work at my job and, and, and work well at my job, so hopefully God looks down and He's happy with me. He's happy with me because I'm working hard. That's not what the gospel is. That's not what this call is for us to walk in a, in a way that pleases God, not to appease Him. See, we work hard because we know we're already loved and accepted because of what Jesus has done. Because of the work that Christ has done, we now can work to please Him. We're not working to try to earn anything from Him. God cannot be bought by our works. He can't. God gives us grace. And in this grace, now we work to please Him. Please Him. Colossians says it another way. The book of Colossians it says, Work heartily as unto the Lord and not unto man. Whether that man be yourself or your boss. We work heartily as unto the Lord. We've got to understand this because this is revolutionary for how and why we work. See, we ultimately work to please God, not our marketplace, not our supervisor. We work to please God, not our boss ultimately. You see, when we have this view that we're working to please God, our work ethic changes because we realize that, that God is our boss. That God is our audience. God becomes our supervisor. And this motive will change the way we work because we love Him and we want to please Him. It changes the way we work. Some of you may have been here, but the Sistine Chapel, amazing work of art. The artist Michelangelo painted this. And it was interesting because it started small. It was only supposed to be a picture of the disciples. And then it grew to where there's more than 400 individuals painted in this chapel. And there's nine different scenes from the book of Genesis that are painted on it. And this was grueling work. I mean, when he's up there painting, he's laying on scaffolding and looking up at the ceiling, he's painting. I mean, imagine what that would do to you. I mean, just paint dripping on you for four years. For four years he did this to paint this work. Well, towards the end of it, it was interesting because he's working on some of the, the edges of the Sistine Chapel. And some of these dark corners that nobody's going to see. And one of his co-workers asked Michelangelo, why do you focus on these details and these dark corners that nobody else will see? And he responded and said, God will see. God sees. 
you see that what motivated him to work was that he was working for the Lord. He was working heartily as unto him. It didn't matter if his coworkers saw it. It didn't matter if the people who were paying him saw it. What mattered to him is that God saw it. He knew it. He knew that God sees everything, and he cares about these details. And for us, many times, we look, and we're like, nobody sees it. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about this TPS report I'm turning in. Nobody cares about these things. God does. God sees, and that's where our work ethic starts as believers. We look and we're like, we want to honor and please God, and so we work as unto Him. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 9, it tells us that our work should be driven with brotherly love. What's fascinating here in verse 9 is, verse 9 and 10, we would honestly kind of segment those. If we just read this, we'd be like, oh, he's talking about love here, how to love each other. And then verses 10 and 11, he's talking about work. And so like, hey, here's two different sermons. How do we love people and how do we work? But if you look, they're one section. And actually, verse 10 is the same sentence that rolls into verse 11. What he's showing us right here is that our love for others is what motivates us in how we work. We lovingly consider others in what we do. This is, this is interesting. Like I said, this is not revolutionary. You're sitting here thinking, love God and love others. I've heard that before. Yeah, but it's really hard to do. It's really hard to do. Even last week when we looked at the sex ethic, it was about how to love God and faithfully love and respect others. God's word is continuing to say the same things over and over again. And I love the depths of this love that God calls us to love other people. He says concerning brotherly love. Now, most of the time, this word in the Greek, the word Philadelphia, it would be used to talk about your love for a family member, a brother or a sister or a husband or a wife. Like, that's when you would use this Philadelphia brotherly love. And he's going to take it out of that and put it in a much bigger concept. He's going to say, no, it's not just about those that are in your blood lineage, not ones that are a part of just your immediate family. I want you to look at those within the church. Love them. I want you to think about how you work and how that impacts your society and your culture. And I want you to love in that way. And this is what he's calling us to do. And I love what he says here in verse 9 because he's going to tell them a couple things. But he says, I don't need to say these things because you're already doing them. But I'm going to say them anyway. All right. He says, you know, we don't have to worry about writing these things for you because you've been taught by God to love one another. How are they taught by God? Literally, Jesus, God in human form, comes to earth. 100% God, 100% man, and he teaches through his life and through his teaching to love others. When you look at the life of Christ, everything about it was to love God the Father and to honor him and to love other people. I mean, Jesus worked in such a way that he would wash people's feet who would ultimately betray him. Think about that for a minute. He went to the cross and he died for his enemies. That is real work. And so they were taught by God through Jesus, right? This example of how we work to love others. But not just through his example, he taught it. Jesus taught over and over again. This is a hallmark of Jesus' teaching, to love God and to love others. So the question you might be asking, that I'm even asking in this moment, is, okay, what does that look like practically? 
like, how do I work in such a way that I, I love others? Well, one is through our integrity. Our integrity and our honesty is a way that we love and honor God by being honest. And we love others. Specifically, this time, Christians were doing something that was countercultural, that was turning the world upside down. People in the marketplace at that time, you couldn't trust them. You would come in and you would look to buy a, a, a bowl or, or a pot for water. And if you weren't careful, people would take bowls that were broken and they would put wax in between them to stick them together. And then they would paint them so that you couldn't tell that they were shattered, broken pots. That was a word that they would use to say that this pot is insincere. If it's broken and it's got wax still in the cracks, it's an insincere pot. But what they found is that when you would go into the marketplace because you didn't know who to trust, you would take that pot before you bought it and you would hold it up to the sunlight. And if the light would shine through, you could see the wax and the difference between the pot and the wax. And if it was a full pot that wasn't broken or shattered, they would say that's a sincere pot. What Christians were doing at that time is they're like, we're not going to make any insincere pots. We're going to be honest. We're going to work with integrity to love others. So what we're going to do is when people come, they're going to know our pots are sincere. Our bowls are sincere. Church family, the same is true for us today in how we work. We don't cut corners, but we do things with quality for the love of the Lord and for the love of others. I had a friend that he, he worked for a wiring company where they would have different big wires that would go to different projects, whether it's electrical wires or phone wires and all these different things. And one day this guy came in, and he was a construction worker that had come there day after day, and he's like, hey, I don't need a whole box of 100 foot of this wire, I just need 10. And his boss looked at my buddy, and he said, I want you to go cut 10 wires or 10 feet of wire out of that box. And he's like, okay, are we going to, like, keep the box? He's like, no, 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 just close the box back up afterward, and nobody will know we'll sell that box that has 100 foot in it. He's like, I can't, I can't do that. I, I, I can't do that. He's like, why? He's like, because it's not honest. It's not sincere. It doesn't have integrity behind it. This person's paying for 100 foot, and we're cutting 10 feet out of it. And so his boss went and did it. And he actually talked to him later and was like, man, I'm really surprised you wouldn't do that. Why? He told him, I want to be a man of integrity and honesty. Why? Because that's how I honor my God. That's how I love other people. We also see at this time the way the Christians were living to turn the world upside down. They were looking at their culture where the, the fabric of society was ripping apart. And they're like, that's where we want to serve. That's where we want to work to help this broken society. And so if you look, it's fascinating. You can read articles. It's all over the place. It's, you just Google this and you'll see it. How Christians influenced hospitals and healthcare. And healthcare didn't start because there was money to be found in it. Christians looked at people who were suffering, people who were hurting, that were just shoved outside the city. And they said, look how Jesus worked to heal and to care for these people that nobody else cared about. How he went and worked with people that had leprosy. We want to love and care for people in that way. And so literally, they're the ones that started to start up these different areas to love and to serve and care for people called hospitals. I mean, at that time, they had different forms of hospital care, but it was with the military. People that would get hurt, we want our military to be strong, and so we'll provide some kind of care for military people, but average people, no. And it's fascinating. The, the first large hospital that was ever built was built by Christians, 300 A.D., where they could have 300 people come in and be cared for. And 
Those of you that have been around long enough have seen the name change of hospitals. They used to be Baptist Hospital and Presbyterian Hospital. You ever wondered why? It's because churches either gave or helped to start those because they're like, we want to love and we want to care for people. Because people have value. We want to give people time to hear the gospel and to believe the gospel. And this is what it looks like for you and I to love and to serve other people and to honor the Lord. So I know this might not sound earth-shaking or radical of like love God and love other people through your work. But if we look and we compare it side by side with what motivates the world to work, it's different. It's vastly different. I mean, think about you. Even if you are a believer, you can think back. I mean, what at times has motivated you to work? Many times it's fear. It's not a love for God and a love for others that motivates us to work. It's fear and anxiety. I I don't want to lose all my money and be homeless and be out on the side of the road starving to death. And so, like, I've just got to work. So we work out of this fear and anxiety, and our whole work ethic is built on fear. And so we're exhausted, and we're tired, and we're just like, oh, we're living in all this anxiety because we don't want to lose our job enough. I mean, like, most of us in this room, if not all of us, I mean, we will be okay. God's going to provide for us. None of us are going to finish our life on the side of the road, starving to death for something to eat, and think, God, if I just would have padded my resume more, life would have been so much better. No. So the question is this. What's driving that fear in our heart? What makes us work out of this broken motivation of fear and anxiety? Our lack of trust in the Lord. Right? God, are you going to provide? Do you really care about this part of my life? And God is saying yes over and over again in the scriptures. He's telling us, yes, I care about this. Yes, I'm going to provide for you. Don't worry. Don't be anxious about all these things. Don't work from a sense of fear. That's radically different than working out of love. Or maybe what drives us to work is financial security. And this isn't that, God, give me all the money in the world. I just want to be greedy so I can have all the money. As long as I get a millionaire, I'm good. No, our heart is is a lot more deceptive than that. What we say, honestly, selfishly is, I just want to be able to have enough money to do whatever I want to do. As long as I can have enough money to do whatever it is that I want to do, then I'm good. Then I'm happy. Financial security is not a bad thing, but when it becomes what motivates us to work ultimately, because we're finding our security in money instead of the Lord, we come up lacking. And if it's not fear and it's not security, what drives us to work is status. I just, I want to be known that when I say where I work, that people hear it and go, oh man, that's impressive. You work there? Wow. Okay. You're, you're a big deal. You got that status. We'll even tell people of places we interviewed at, even if we didn't get the job, to impress people. Hey, guess where I interviewed? I interviewed there. Did you get the job? No, I didn't, but I interviewed there. Wow, that's impressive, right? Why? We want status behind our work. We want people to think highly of us. This is the reality. But what's crazy about this, as we run after working with these as our foundation instead of the love for God and love for others, what we're finding is that we're unfulfilled and we're insecure. 
Does that blow your mind? We're striving after security and fulfillment. And then when we're striving after those two things, we never get them. We never get them. This was a few years back, but Nathan Hatch, who's the president of Wake Forest University, go Deacons, right? He, in this uh, article, uh, was writing about why we work. And he admitted to many of the educators that he's seen this for years. He said that there's a disproportionate amount of young adults who for years have been trying to cram into the fields of finance, consulting, and law, and medicine because of the high salaries and the aura of success that surrounds them. He said students were doing very little with a reference to the larger questions of meaning and purpose. That is, they chose professions not that answered the question, what helps people flourish? What makes me flourish? And he said, as a result, there's a high degree of frustration expressed over unfulfilling work. Do you hear what he's saying in there? This is not a Christian man. He's saying people are pursuing jobs for the money and security and status. And then when they did that, they got out in the world and they're like, I'm unfulfilled. I'm not happy. I'm not secure. We're striving after these things like we're chasing after the wind. We're standing here empty-handed. Unfulfilling work. And that's why God says, work is not wrong. You're just doing it wrong. Strive after loving others loving me. Look at how you can work in such a way that influences and, and helps society and the community as a whole. I mean, be a doctor, yes, but be a doctor who's, who's serving and loving other people. And I don't know about you, but I do not want a doctor who is in it just for the money. I'm just a means to an end. I got to come in, I got to deal with this person that has this issue, like, oh gosh, I don't care about them. Yeah, put this medicine on, let's go. Like, no, I want somebody who loves and who cares for me. And yes, if they get paid a lot of money, that's great. But I hope that their desires for people more than money. Give me a lawyer who loves justice and is willing to argue for what is right and not a paycheck. And that's why we would get into law, because we see injustices in the world and brokenness in the world, and we're like, fabric's ripping. I want to be a part of that. I want to love God by fighting for justice in this way, and I want to love others through fighting for justice. That's what should be motivating us. That should be what our desire is. And may it never be, may it never be, at least for Wesley Bears Church, that people look to you as a Christian and you're working, and they know you're only about it for the money. May it never be. Because people pick up on that, whether you say it with your mouth or not. Your coworkers are going to know what drives you to work, what motivates you to work. And if we as a, as a church are people that are running primarily after money, Instead of a love for God and a love for others, I think we're failing on what God is calling us to do in the world. So whether you make a lot or whether you make a little, it doesn't matter. Both are honoring to the Lord if we do it for Him. So let's do it to love Him, to love others. Do it with the right motive. All right, so that's why we work. But now there's a description He gives in verse 11 of how we should work. What does our work look like? In verse 11, He says three things. Circle it, underline it, this should be what we're striving after. But it says, aspire to live quietly. That's the first thing. And to mind your own affairs, that's the second thing. And to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now it's fascinating, verse 11, when he says, 
aspire to live quietly. Those two words are completely opposite. In that language and even as we think about it, right? Aspire, that's a word that they would talk about with political leaders. Somebody at that time who was trying to climb the ladder, let's get up to the top so I can sit on my throne and rule over all these people. I'm aspiring to get to the top. And he's saying, hey, believers, you should aspire. We as Christians should be some of the most driven people in our work. Please let us be some of the most driven people. And if God allows us to move up and he exalts us and we get promotions, praise the Lord for that. That's fantastic. But the ultimate goal right here is that we aspire to live quietly. And that word for quietly literally means rest. God's desire is not that your work would be restless, but that your work would be that your work would be restful. We aspire to work in ways that we would have rest. That's why Jesus even says, "For those of you that are weary, heavy laden, come to me, and I will give you rest." Those of you that are trying to work to appease God, no, 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 no. come to me, and I will give you rest. You can work to please me. You see, when we work with this kind of aspiration to work for, for the Lord and to work for rest, what we'll find is that we won't be overworked. God will not overwork us. Nor will we be underworked. But we will work diligently in our love of God and finding rest in Him. We will. God does not desire to overwork you and to burn you out. There's a reason why God, when he created everything, said, I worked six days and I rested one. But what's fascinating is we start the week to rest. Our Sabbath is is today, right? The start of the week. We work from our rest. We don't work the whole week exhausted and burned out. Like, now I have to rest. No, we rest so well that it inspires us to work well all week for the Lord. Because this is what he's calling us to do. We see this multiple times throughout Scripture that it has to start with a love for the Lord. It has to. If you remember the story of Mary and Martha, Jesus comes to visit them. And Martha is working hard. She's getting all the meals ready. She's cleaning up the house. She's making sure that everything's perfect in place and everybody's going to be welcomed and be a part. And she's getting angry at her sister, Mary. She's not working. She's not doing anything. And so in her mind, she's like, well, I'm going to tell Jesus to tell Mary to get her in the kitchen, get her some food. Let's get some work going on. But what happens is she comes to Jesus and says, why is my sister not helping me? And he looks at Martha and he's like, are you troubled and anxious about many things? How many of us could describe our work feeling like that? Troubled or anxious about many things. And then Jesus says, Mary has chosen the better thing, the thing that will never be taken away from her. She would be in my presence. And she would hear my teaching. And she would love me. See, this is out of that work. This is the picture. Out of that work comes peace. Out of that rest, it comes rest. So God is calling us to aspire to live quietly. But then second, he says, and and mind your own affairs. Mind your own affairs. We, we break this command for us when we don't work well. You know when you start caring about everybody else's affairs is when you're not doing your own well. 
you're in everybody else's business and you're going to critique and complain about everybody else and how they should do this and why they're doing this wrong because you're not doing what God has called you to do well. You work with what God has given you to do and that will be more than enough for you, I promise. But when we start getting bored, we start getting restless instead of restful, when we start looking around and complaining about everybody else and getting in everybody else's business, when we should be coming to the Lord, loving Him and loving others. And then he says here too, to, to work with your hands. So yes, live quietly, mind your own business, but then work with your hands. And this last command I think is huge because many of us, at least sometime in our life, will fall into this third category. This whole call to work with your hands, that was not an aspiring job at that moment. In this moment in history, the, the, the top echelon jobs, you worked with your mind. You wanted to be a banker so that you could work with money and work with your mind. Or you wanted to be a philosopher to, to work in such a way that you would have all these teaching, you have these followers that would come to you. And so working with your mind, if that's what it said, work with your mind, as we've instructed you, people will be like, yes, that's where I want to be. I want to be at the like famous positions. But when it says here, work with your hands, those were kind of the blue-collar jobs that, that people didn't really see as significant. But God does. God does. And for some of us, we're, we're working at a job with, with little to no passion. We're just like, I don't even know if I want to be here. I have no passion for this job. God is saying in that moment, Work with your hands. Even if it's not the, the job that you want to finish your career at, if it's not your arrival spot, you work with your hands. You work heartily as unto the Lord, not unto man. You work with your hands. And maybe you end up getting a job where you work with your mind, and that's great, but we should all be willing to work with our hands, whether that's serving fast food or whether that's working as a doctor or a lawyer or whether that's in politics. It doesn't matter. We work as unto the Lord. And so maybe you are stuck in a position where it's just not something you're passionate about. God would say, maybe not, but still work. Work with your hands and love others and love me with how you work. And if we do that, and let me say it one more time before we move on. One just area of caution in First Eleven. Some of us will read these three things, to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, and become isolated. We, as Christians, will go to verse 11 and say, okay, if this is what I'm supposed to do, then I'm just going to basically not care about anybody else. I'm going to live quietly, and I'm going to mind my own business and not care about other people's business, and I'll even work hard with my hands because nobody else cares. And so we'll become introverted in that. But you need to see that is not what the people did, not what the Christians did in Thessalonica. If you look back up at verse 10, they're loving God and they're loving people. And it says what you are doing, it's echoing throughout all of Macedonia. So what he's saying is, yes, you're minding your own business. Yes, you're keeping your mouth shut. Yes, you're working with your hands. But it is echoing to your city of Thessalonica and the whole region. I mean, to put it in our context today, that would be like saying work in such a way that impacts Charlotte and Concord and North Carolina and South Carolina. The whole region of the southeast that you would influence that. That's what their work ethic is doing. When they're working to love God and to love others, it is not a hermit, pull back, be isolated. No, they're involved. God is using them to be a light. 
This is what God is calling us to do. Not to ultimately work for a paycheck, but to work to be a light. And that's the last thing I want us to see, the last question I want us to answer. What is the result of working in this way? As we work for the Lord and as we live these things out, what's the result? Verse 12 tells us. If we work like this, we will walk properly before outsiders. God desires for the way that you and I work to be a light to those who don't believe in him. We should work so diligently and so heartily that people are like, why aren't you cutting corners? Why are you living that way? Why are you putting in extra hours just because you're, 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 not, you're not supposed to, but you're doing it anyway? Why are you doing that? People that don't know the Lord will see this and it will change their lives. They'll ask that question. And when they ask that question, just be willing to tell them why. Don't lie, be honest, because I love the Lord. I want to honor Him. I want to love others. I want to honor them. And as we live and work in this way, that's one of the results. We will be a light in a dark world. But also the second thing, not only will we be a light, but it says, and be dependent on no one. That's the second result. Be dependent on no one. This is so important what this is saying, because this is a huge principle. But what he's saying about Christians is that we should be life-giving to our society, not taking. We should be pouring into society for the good of it, not taking away. At this time, there were, there were Christians. Paul even has to write in 2 Thessalonians. You can read it if you, this week if you want to. But there were some Christians that became lazy and they stopped working. They're like, we don't need to work. We've got other people that are going to take care of us financially. And Jesus is coming back at some point anyway, so it doesn't matter. We don't have to work. And Paul says, no, stop mooching off society. Stop mooching off other people and work. He has to call them on it. Work so you're not dependent on anyone. Why? Because you want to be investing and pouring into society, not making more brokenness in it. And this is what Christians are called to do. Now let me just say, this is not a... Not a slam on people who are unemployed and trying to find a job. That's not what he's saying. He's calling out people who are unemployed and don't even care. They're just being lazy, not even looking, being idle. That's what he's calling them on. We as Christians have been saved. And Jesus didn't redeem us out of the world. He redeemed us for the world to help fix it. And so we can't be just taking, taking, taking. We pour out into it and we give through the way that we work. It's one of the results that God's word is calling us to do. And what we find is if we work in this way, yeah, we'll be a light for Milwaukee. And we won't be dependent on others. And people will look at that and go, that's different. They'll stand in awe of that. The lost world will stand in awe of our work ethic, but it does not finish with us. That is not the finish line. That is not a, the goal, that we live like this so that people say, man, you did a great work this week. Ultimately, though the world may stand in awe of our work, we stand in awe of the work of Christ. As Christians, we know that our work ethic is but a shell of the work ethic of Jesus Christ. I mean, all that he did, his life and his death and his resurrection all this, the work of salvation that he put together for you and I, that's what we stand in awe of. We as Christians are like, how in the world can you say, Father, forgive them as they nail you to the cross? How can you wash somebody's feet and love them and work for them when you know they're going to betray you? How do you do that? Because of who our God is. 
He's a God of love, and that love drives him to work. That love drives him and motivates him to seek and to save that which is lost. And so church, may we look to Christ for our example. When people ask us about our work ethic, may we point them to Christ also. And church, I mean, that's what we do as we finish service today. As we take the Lord's Supper, this is what we're remembering. We're remembering the work of Christ. The greatest work that the world has ever seen and will ever know. The work of Christ with the giving of his body and the shedding of his blood has wiped away our sin. Whether that's a work ethic sin, right? Or whether that's like we looked last week, a sexual sin in our lives. Jesus is saying, my work was enough. You don't, try to, you don't have to try to work to get salvation. My work is enough. Which is why he says it is finished. It is finished. And so let me invite you, if you are a Christian, a believer in Jesus, that we take this and remember the work of Christ to save us. And for us, that, or those of us in the room that don't know Jesus, then look to this work for your salvation. Look to this work of Jesus. The Bible says that this is meant for believers to take, to remember what Christ has done for them. And to proclaim to those who don't believe, this is what we believe. We believe that Jesus died and gave his body and shed his blood that we could be forgiven. And you know what? Jesus did that for you too if you believe and trust in him. And so church, what I want to invite you to do is if you are a believer, we're going to have a moment of silence and just pray and confess your sins and remember that Christ's work paid it all. He has wiped away your sin so you can work please him and not to try to appease him. And for others of us that don't know Jesus, would you take this time to remember his blood that was shed for you, his body that was given for you? Because God's word says if you will confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So you can use this time, this moment of silence, to ask him to save you and to cleanse you of your sin. Church, if he has saved you, then you can pray now and
praise you that you have paid all, all for our sins, all for our disbelief. And you have paid it all. And so we thank you for the grace. God, we thank you for the salvation that's extended and invited us to be your children. So Lord, we take the Lord's Supper Take this cup remembering that Christ's blood was shed. 